Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, February 5th, 2017. The share ID for Friday, February 3rd, is 9538. That's 9538. This morning, A Vision for You presents, We Tried to Carry This Message. Step 12 states, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Step 12 gives us a guarantee, a promise, that if we apply the previous 11 steps, we will have a spiritual awakening, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. When you've had a spiritual awakening, what are you supposed to do with it? Well, that's what Chapter 7, Working with Others, is all about. The big book states that we have recovered and have been given the power to help others. We can now sit down with another individual who has a similar problem to our own and convey an understanding and a message that no one else can. Because of our experience, we can cross barriers of race, religion, and every other kind, and we can help and guide another in a very special, unique, and meaningful way. We can carry a message of depth and weight. Here today to bring to life Chapter 7, Working with Others, is Harlan G., a recovered compulsive overeater from Scottsdale, Arizona. Harlan is a loyal servant of Overeaters Anonymous, a very good friend to a vision for you, and he's always trying to be helpful, and he's here with us this morning. Good morning, Harlan. Good morning, Leah. Thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. It's my pleasure and honor to be here. Can I be heard okay? Beautifully. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. As Leah just said, I'm Harlan G. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Scottsdale, Arizona, originally from Chicago. Um, I am so glad to be here, so honored to be here this morning. Um, I, I come to this, to this program very naturally. I have been a compulsive overeater from the moment I was born. There was never really a time in my life where I had any type of, uh, of, of relief from this compelling drive to eat food against my will. I have very vivid memories of being three and four years old and listening to people screaming at the top of their lungs at my mother and father about how much I was eating and how fat I was getting and why is he eating chocolate chip cookies and why is he eating this and why is he eating that. And then when I got to be about five and six years old, they started screaming directly at me and they started abusing me and pushing me physically and pushing me emotionally. And I understood something at a very early age that I was not okay as long as I kept eating compulsively, that there was something wrong with me, that there was something bad about me. And the world looked at me and wondered why I was eating so much food. And I looked at them at an early age and wondered, 
Why aren't you eating so much food? How is it that you can take a cookie, one cookie, split it in half, give the other half to another person, and the two of you are eating a half a cookie and that you're satisfied and I have to eat the entire box. I have to eat the entire bag. The only time I ever ate one cookie was when it was the last cookie I could get my hands on. And I wondered what Lake Michigan amount of willpower were you issued in your life that seemed somehow to escape me? How did this issuance of willpower seemed to get past me, and it just wasn't fair. My, my mother was a compulsive overeater. My mother was mentally ill. My mother had three very distinct personalities. My mother could be a screaming, raving lunatic one minute, and the next minute she could be three years old. And the next minute after she was three years old, she could be a totally together, very lucid, very together human being. And you never knew which personality you were going to get and how long it was going to last. And I tried to do everything I could to convince her to become that normal human being. And she just couldn't do it. I didn't understand mental illness. I didn't understand what was going on. I didn't understand it then, and I'm not sure I understand it now, but at least I have acceptance around it. My dad, um, he walked out of Europe when Europe was a graveyard for Jews before Hitler, before World War II. He came to this country in 1914 to start a new life at the age of 14. His entire family was obliterated off the face of the earth. He was the sole survivor of murder, hatred, and mayhem, that went through Poland and went through those areas of Russia where he was at an unbelievable clip. The hatred and the murder and the mayhem left him bereft of family and left him absolutely fractured. He could be walking down the street and he would smell something or he would hear a conversation or he would just be thinking and all of a sudden he would burst into tears and he would be thinking about that night when they came into the home and his brother Charlie pushed him, his brother Yecheskel, his brother Charlie pushed him out the door and said, run, run. And that's why my middle name is Charles today in honor of the brother that saved his life. And the bottom line is, is that that marked him and it, it scarred him. He, he was very, very scared. He was very unsure of the world that he was living in. And he was absolutely certain that at some point they were going to come and round us up and kill us. And that was going to be our demise. That was, he told me every day of my life, every single day of my life, when they came to kill me, I got away. One day they'll come and kill you. And if they don't come and kill you, they'll kill your children. That's how much they hate you. And this is what I'm growing up in. And a little later on in my life, I'm going to ex be expected to accept a spiritual way of life, a spiritual recovery centered around a God that I didn't believe in as a child. And we're going to talk about this. We're not going to talk about it right this second, but trust me, this morning we will talk about that. Um, I have very vivid memories of my mom telling me when I was three, four, five years old, I hate your father. The only reason I live here is because of you. 
I have very vivid memories of my father telling me when I was three, four, five years old, I hate your mother. The only reason I live here is because of you. And all I really wanted to know was, was Yogi Bear and Little Boo Boo going to get away with the picnic basket because Ranger Smith was coming around the corner. And I didn't have any wherewithal to handle all this information of we can't pay our electric bill and I hate your father and I hate your mother and they just, they fought constantly. I never even saw them be cordial to one another. I never even saw them be nice to one another. I never saw a nice word pass between the two of them and this is what I'm growing up in. And then my weight and my food became the focal point of our family's existence. And they were eating, and I was eating, and it was just, it was bedlam. The only word I can use to describe it was bedlam, bedlam. And I became my father's wife. I became my mother's husband because they only spoke to me. They really didn't speak nicely to each other. When I was nine years old, they put me on diet pills. They put me on very heavy amphetamines. And I lost weight, and I could feel the temples of my head in my head just going ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. And you sleep about 15 minutes a month, uh, but you don't eat. But when the pills wear off and you crash from these amphetamines, you eat Illinois and most of Wisconsin. And then when I was 10 years old, they started getting some of the uh, information on these amphetamines, and they changed me from a pink pill to a blue pill with the exact same effect. The exact same result was you don't eat, you don't sleep, and and you just you can't even hear what people are saying to you. I don't know how many of you were on these pills, but you can't even hear what people are saying to you. It's like not getting through. It's like surrealistic. It sounds like like Charlie Brown's teacher in, in the cartoons. And I get accused of this now, but I would say the same thing like 300 times. And I'm in my head saying to myself, you've already said that 300 times. Stop, shut up. And I just, I can't stop myself. I become like a motor mouth. And now I'm an eater. I'm not a fighter. And I'm getting into fist fights at school and, and, and this, and my grades are plummeting. And I, I it just, it was just a mess, just an absolute mess. And I did a lot of things to try to curb my appetite because that was a big phrase in those days, curb your appetite. And I remember doing um, Metricale and I remember lose weight with AIDS, those little candies, um, the little, you know, if one chocolate candy would cure my appetite, then, you know, 50 of them would, would be better. You know, if one is good, 10 is better. Um, then later on, I became a Tops King. I went to Tops in Skokie, which is butted up right against where I lived in. The, I lived in the city, but Skokie and Lincolnwood and Evanston were right, right there. Um, I did Weight Watchers. I did Tops. And I could diet down and lose weight, but I could never, ever keep it off. And, excuse me, I forgot the allergies here are acting up again. Um, I was 335 pounds as a senior in high school. This disease ransacked my life. This disease came into my life. This disease took every dream 
that I could dream every aspiration and annihilated it. When I was in high school, I never went on a date. I never went to the dance. I never went to homecoming. I never went to the prom. Whatever it is, I was excluded. I had a lot of friends, but I was not to go on my first date with a girl till I was 35 years of age. This disease deformed me. This disease emasculated me. It emasculated me physically, and it emasculated me emotionally. This disease made me want to die. This disease made it so that when people would say to me, you're going to die, I prayed to God that they were right, and I prayed to God that that death would be sudden and right now. The only thing I wanted to know was, can I get 10 minutes so that I could get some extra Kit Kat bars, some extra Doritos, and some extra French fries in my mouth so at least I can die with a full stomach and I can eat all the food I'm destined to eat before death comes. I did not want to live in this world, and I certainly did not know how. I didn't fit in my skin. I didn't fit in my clothes. I didn't fit in my world. I didn't fit in my desk at school. I didn't fit in cars. I didn't fit in my life. By the time I was in college, I was about 500 pounds. My mother was very sick. My mother was was, uh, um, a dialysis patient. My mother later was an amputee from diabetes. I think that the, the amputation of her leg was more traumatic on everybody than her death. Her death was almost like a welcome uh, thing because she, she, she couldn't live anymore. She was just ransacked by her mental illness and ransacked by her physical illness. My dad died. My mom died when I was 22 years old. My dad died when I was 24 years old. And this disease extracted from me every shred of human decency that I was issued at birth. I was writing bad checks to anyone dumb enough, kind enough to take them. I was robbing Peter while I was robbing Paul. I lied when the truth would have served me better. I remember the filth, the absolute filth of my apartment and the filth of how I lived, the squalor of how I lived, and it was not living. I was breaking furniture at the end. I would sit in in furniture and break it. I couldn't sit in cars. I couldn't go to the movies because I couldn't sit in the seat. Um, Every time I would walk, not every time, but when I would walk down the street, children would laugh at me. Uh, Adults would laugh at me. I would go into public places and become an object of ridicule. Um, And I I didn't want to live in this world. I absolutely did not know how. Now, we're going to be talking a little later on this morning about God, and we're going to talk about spiritual things because they're very important. And without them, there is no program. And you can believe whatever you want to believe, and I'm going to believe what I want to believe. But I absolutely believe that my father held great stead with God Almighty, and I'm absolutely certain that my father is in heaven because he certainly lived hell on earth. And he was a good man. He was a good guy. Everybody liked him. 
Everybody liked him. My father was the kind of guy that if he had $10, he'd give you 50 He would give you the skin off of his back. And the last conversation I had with my mom was she wanted me to find a way to not eat so much so that I could be thinner and get a good job. The last conversation that I ever had with my father was basically the same conversation that he he said that the food is a meril hazak, which in Yiddish means it's a murderous thing. He says it was an unglick. An unglick is like a plague into your life. He says, I saw your face when you were born. I thought you could be president of the United States. And he said, the food just came and ransacked you. I'm translating from Yiddish. It just ransacked you, my son. My son means my son. He said, find a way not to live, not to, not, to, not to eat so much so you can live. A couple of hours later, he died. Now, you can believe whatever you want to believe, but I believe my father held great stead with Lord. And my father died in November of 1978. And in February, February 2nd, 1979, two friends pushed their way past the filth and the pizza boxes and the candy wrappers of my apartment and took me to a meeting at the Orchard Mental Health Center at Nile Center Road in Skokie, Illinois, and I went to my very first meeting of Overeaters Anonymous. Now, it's been a long journey, and I need to get to the chapter, and we need to talk about Step 12, but I wanted to just give you a basis of who I am and how I came to Overeaters Anonymous. It's been a very long wonderful journey. And if I had a pill that would cure you but cheat you out of this journey, I would throw the pill in the toilet because I wouldn't want to cheat you out of this unbelievable journey. Let's talk about step 12. Let's go if you want to follow along. If you're page 89, working with others. Now, before we start this, I want to remind myself and I want to remind all of us that we come from the Oxford group and the Oxford groupers were people who were practicing first century Christianity to the very best of their ability and they were founded by Frank Buckman and Frank Buckman was a Lutheran minister in Pennsylvania who believed that Christians were losing their enthusiasm, there's a nice word, enthusiasm, it comes from the Greek enthetos, from God. They were losing their enthusiasm for their Christianity, and he was looking for a way to infuse enthusiasm back into Christianity. God sent Frank Buckman on a mission to China And in China, he saw Christians who had regained their zeal for their Christianity. Their enthusiasm was back. And he wondered how in the world they were doing it. And he found that it was through altruism, through working with other people that had infused back into their lives this massive dose of enthusiasm. Altruism thinking of others first, giving with no thought of repayment. And he brings this back to the Oxford group, so-called, because his 
He was in England at that time near Oxford University. And Sam Shoemaker was his point man in New York City at the Cavalry Mission. And Sam Shoemaker was an Episcopal minister who believed the same kind of things. And they were teaching the Oxford group guys about service to other people. All through this book, I don't have the time to go through every reference to it, but at the very beginning, in the doctor's opinion, Dr. Silkworth called this an altruistic movement. Bill Wilson in his story says, when all other measures failed, work with another alcoholic would save the day. So we see Bill, excuse me, we see Bill bringing this to life. And then we also see on page 14, he says, while I lay in the hospital, this is in Bill's story, page 14, while I lay in the hospital, the thought came that there were thousands of hopeless alcoholics who might be glad to have what had been so freely given me. Perhaps I could help some of them. They, in turn, might work with others. There are many references, and we're going to read one today that says, helping others is the foundation stone of my recovery. Constant thought of others. And then the quintessential one, page 77, which is, a, which is a sentence that tells me why I was born and why I survived and why I'm here today. It is one of the quintessential sentences in the book. It says, our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. That is very, very important. Let's go to page 89. Practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. It works when, excuse me, excuse me, it works when other activities fail. This is our 12th suggestion. Carry this message to other alcoholics. Not some message, not a message, this message. And what is he talking about here? Carry this message, the message of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. You can help when no one else can. You can secure their confidence when others fail. Remember, they are very ill. We are the only people that understand, those who have recovered, we are the only people who understand what it's like to have this illness. And if we have recovered, we are the only people who understand what it's like to recover from that seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Now, we go back and we want to water down this message sometime, or we want to improvise this message sometime. And that can be very, very dangerous because it doesn't say carry Harlan's message. It says carry this message. And in the foreword to the second edition, it says very clearly of 100 people that came into Alcoholics Anonymous, 50% of those people got sober at once. Of the remaining 50, 25 came back and got sober. And then of the remaining 25, they showed improvement. Now, that is 75% recovery. Wow. 75% recovery. 
I have done big book retreats and big book conventions in about 35 of the states of the United States, and I have traveled this country hither and yon, and I have never seen 75% recovery. I have never seen 50% recovery. I've never seen 5% recovery. We are lucky in Overeaters Anonymous if we are recovering at one, one and a half to 2%. Why? Because we keep diluting the message of the big book, which is a pure message, which is what I believe that vision for you is the renaissance of OA right now. Vision for you is growing. The meeting that you're listening to now or on podcast is growing and flourishing and Overeaters Anonymous is struggling. We are the renaissance of OA. We are part of OA. We are not separate from OA. We are not better than OA. We are a part of rather than a part from. But this is the renaissance. I believe it and I see the numbers. I hope to see some of you in September in Newark, New Jersey which, by the way, is where most of the big book was written. It was in Newark, New Jersey. And it's funny, we're having our convention there. I hope to see some of you in September. Life will take on new meaning, back to page 89, to watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up around you, to have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. It's a tremendous journey. We know you will not want to miss it. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. Perhaps you are not acquainted with any drinkers who want to recover. You can easily find somebody asking a few doctors, ministers, priests, or hospitals. They will be only too glad to assist you. Don't start out as an evangelist or reformer. Unfortunately, a lot of prejudice exists. You will be handicapped if you arouse it. Ministers and doctors are competent and you can learn much from them if you wish, but it happens that because of your own drinking experience, you can be uniquely useful to other alcoholics. So cooperate, never criticize. To be helpful is our only aim. And that advice about not uh, evangelizing, not you know, arousing that prejudice. Bill Wilson was a terrible sponsor. We're going to read this morning about how he was, and we'll talk about it for just a minute. But Dr. Silkworth straightened him out and says, hey, I heard about some of the shenanigans you're pulling out there in New York. You're pulling these guys off the bar stools, and you're talking to them about God and taking them to the Oxford group meetings, and most of them don't want to go. And he said to him in the spring of 1935, Tell them about the allergy of the body and the twist of the mind that I told you. And when Bill stopped evangelizing, the very first person that he had a chance to try this out on was Bob Smith in Akron when he went out there on a proxy fight in a failed business venture, and the rest is history, or we wouldn't be sitting here now. Top of 90, when you discover a prospect for Alcoholics Anonymous, find out all you can about him. If he does not want to stop drinking, don't waste time trying to persuade him. You may spoil a later opportunity. This advice is given for his family also. They should be patient, realizing they are dealing with a sick person. The Yiddish expression for the day is Lozengain. Lozengain means leave them alone. 
stop calling me at 3 o'clock in the morning, which is fine, but stop calling me to ask me how you can get somebody sober or somebody abstinent. You can't. Willingness, by the way, is highly overrated. You just really have to put down the food and start working the steps. But if they won't put down the food, lose them gain. Leave them alone. If there is any indication, page 90, that he wants to stop, have a good talk with the person most interested in him. Not so easy to do today, not as apropos. Usually his wife. Get an idea of his behavior, his problems, his background, the seriousness of his condition, and his religious leanings. You need this information to put yourself in his place to see how you would like him to approach you if the tables were turned. I try to speak to people about me, not about them. We are sensitive, immature rebels. Nobody likes to be told what to do. So I try to keep the focus on me. I try to tell them about what I experienced and see if they can identify. And you can just watch their eyes and see if they're identifying. But when it says here, find out all you can about him, one of the things I want to do excuse me, sorry about that, is are they a compulsive overeater? And then once we've established that they are, then then it becomes something else. Sometimes it is wise to wait till he goes on a binge. The family may object to this, but unless he is in a dangerous physical condition, it is better to risk it. Don't deal with him when he is very drunk unless he is ugly and the family needs your help. Wait for the end of the spree or at least for a lucid interval. Then let his family or friend ask him if he wants to quit for good and if he would go to any extreme to do so. You're calling back to page 58. It says, if you want what we have and you're willing to go to any length to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. And this is calling back to do so. What are you willing to do? When are you willing to do it? And I always ask my my question, is there anything you won't do to recover? Excuse me, the Fakakya allergies are, are acting up again. If there's anything they won't do to recover, lozen gain. Leave them alone. You should be, <clears throat> sorry, if he says yes, then his attention should be drawn to you as a person who has recovered. Notice that it says recovered. You should be described to him as one of the fellowship who, as part of their own recovery, try to help others and who will be glad to talk to him if he cares to see you. There are a lot of people calling up and saying, would you call this one? Would you call that one? Would you call this one? Would you call that one? Well, how come they're not calling me? You know, I'm reminded when I read this part of the book about a trip I took to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, a number of years ago. And when I got to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, I was doing something, uh, I was doing a big book retreat not far from there, um, not on the New Jersey side, but on the Pennsylvania side. And they had to bring me to this guy in a hospital in Philadelphia because I must see him and he must see me. And I kept asking, does he want to see me? Does he want to see me? And I never got an answer to that question, but because I didn't have my own car and I couldn't exactly jump out the window, uh, I had to go see this guy. And it was very, very apparent to me 
very apparent to me that he did not want to see me and he did not want to see the gentleman that picked me up from the Philadelphia airport. And when he saw this gentleman, he was quite upset. And I said to this gentleman, let's leave. He does not want to see us. And this gentleman, because he had the car, I couldn't exactly, you know, whatever. This guy that we went to see deliberately soiled the bed. He deliberately went to the bathroom in the bed minutes after we got there. This guy was 500 pounds if he was an ounce. And the edema in his lower legs was unbelievable. He was in very bad condition in the hospital. And he deliberately went to the bathroom in the bed knowing that that would get rid of us. And then I finally dragged this other guy and I said, leave this guy alone. He doesn't want us here. And a few months later, the other guy, the one with the car that picked me up, called me and said, well, he died. He died. So if they don't want to see you, you cannot force yourself upon them. Okay, neither should, if he does not want to see you, never force yourself upon him. Neither should the family hysterically plead with him to do anything, nor should they tell him much about you. They should wait for the end of his next drinking bout. You might place this book where he can see it in the interval. Here, no specific rule can be given. The family must decide these things, but urge him not to be over-anxious, top of 91, for that might spoil matters. Usually, the family should not tell your story. When possible, avoid meeting a man through his family. Approach through a doctor or an institution is a better bet. If your man needs hospitalization, he should have it, but not forcibly if he, unless he is violent. Let the doctor, if he will, tell him he has something in the way of a solution. Approaching through someone very close to you can be very bad. Uh, if my mother told my father today was Sunday, my father would ask me what day it was. If my father told my, Monday, my mother that it was February, my mother would ask me what month it was. If the information came from the other one, it was automatically suspect. When your man is better, 91, the doctor might suggest a visit from you. Though you have talked with the family, leave them out of the first discussion. Again, not as apropos today. We don't normally meet the families in most cases. Under these conditions, your prospect will see he is under no pressure. He will feel he can deal with you without being nagged by his family. Call on him while he is still jittery. He may be more receptive when depressed. When I have gotten my stomach full of food, and I'm just feeling that pall of remorse, that is when I am most approachable. That is when I am most approachable. See your man alone if possible. At first, engage in general conversation. After a while, turn the talk to some phase of drinking. Tell him enough about your drinking habits, symptoms, and experiences to encourage him to speak of himself. If he wishes to talk, let him do so. You will thus get a better idea of how you ought to proceed. If he is not communicative, give him a sketch of your drinking career up to the time you quit, but say nothing for the moment of how that was accomplished. If he is in a serious mood, dwell on the troubles liquor has caused you, being careful not to moralize or lecture. If his mood is light, get him to tell humorous stories of you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Tell him, not get him, but tell him numerous stories of your escapades. Get him to tell some of his. When he sees you know all about the drinking game, commence to describe yourself as an alcoholic. 
top of 92. Tell him how baffled you were, how you finally learned you were sick. Give him an account of the struggles you made to stop. Show him the mental twist which leads to the first drink of a spree. We suggest you do this as we have done it in the chapter on alcoholism. That's chapter more about alcoholism. And if you take a look at the chapter more about alcoholism, chapter three, it is a chapter that says that the main crux of the chapter is the thinking that precedes the first drink. We're going to talk more about that in just a second. If he is alcoholic, he will understand you at once. He will match your mental inconsistencies with some of his own. One of the things that I always talk about with new people is something that is very, very important for me, and I deliberately work it into our conversation here this morning. One of the things that I found out along life's path is that food is never the problem. Food is not the problem for me as a compulsive overeater. That food is the solution to the problem. If food is the, was the problem, treatment centers would turn out winners, and they don't. Bariatric surgery would turn out winners, and they don't. Hospitals would turn out winners, and they don't. Diets would work, and they don't. Having your jaws wired shut would work, and it doesn't. Food is the solution to the problem. Now, if food is the solution to the problem, what is the problem? The problem is the buildup of everyday, normal human emotions. All human beings have happiness. Yes, happiness. Sadness, jealousy, anger, fear, regret, remorse. All human beings have these emotions. And in a normal human being who's not addicted, these emotions can be dissipated by doing very simple things like going to the gym, walking the dog, making love, drinking a glass of wine, uh, driving a little faster than the speed limit, listening to your favorite song on the radio, whatever a person needs to do to dissipate these emotions, they can do so readily, and we see them all the time. Somebody is struggling with a business decision. Somebody is struggling in their marriage, or they just lost a relationship. Whatever that is, they go to the gym, and for the moment, they're fine. Not so with me. These emotions will chrome around my head like a pinball in a pinball machine, and they will activate the mental twist. And the mental twist will sense the intense, searing, unrelenting pain that comes into my soul, into my heart, and into my mind when I am not eating. And when I'm not eating, I'm restless, irritable, and discontent, angry. People would say to me as a kid, don't eat so much, you'll feel better. Man, they were right. 
when I don't eat so much and I'm not in recovery, I feel anger better, I feel fear better, I feel crushes on girls better, I feel like killing myself better, I feel lots of things much, much better. And as these feelings burst to the surface like a Roman candle in my heart, my mind will say on the emotional side, a Reese's peanut butter cup would make this go away. Have a Kit Kat bar. You deserve a tatawa. And the intelligence side of my brain says, oh, no, don't you dare eat a Kit Kat bar. You want to look good. You want to feel good. You want to be healthy. You don't want to get yelled at by the doctor. You want to fit into those clothes. And the emotional side of my brain will say, come on, you're, you haven't had a Kit Kat bar in, say, 35 minutes. You've proved you're not a compulsive overeater. Have a Kit Kat bar. And whenever there's a conflict in an addict between the emotional side of the brain and the intelligent side of the brain, the emotional side of the brain will vanquish the intelligent side of the brain. And besides, I'm going to go on my diet tomorrow, so I eat an Oreo cookie. And then I eat another one. And for about eight seconds, I feel fantastic. For about eight seconds, that effect is surging through me, and I feel remarkably good. And the mental twist and the mental blank spot, the mental blank spot is the built-in forgetter. See, I told you so. But then the physical allergy clamps down on me, and I eat all the cookies and all the ice cream and all the potato chips, and I can't stop. So it begs the question, if I can't eat because of the twist of the mind, and I can't keep from eating, I am powerless over food, and my life is unmanageable. What if I could find a way to live where my mind does not lock in on that sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by eating the food? What if I could find a way to live where I already feel better? What if I could find a way to live where my mind doesn't tell me to eat the food and the process of bringing the necessary power into that equation is called recovery. And that's what this is all about, Charlie Brown. This is about substituting the effect of the food for the effect of the spiritual awakening and the spiritual awakening will do the same thing by giving me a lifetime of happiness rather than a moment of pleasure and it will not extract from me one death-defying side effect. So when I'm feeling that pain, there's only two choices. There's two doors. One door is eat the food. The other door is work the steps. Now, those are the only two doors. There's no third door. I have worked my fingers digging through sand and dirt and clay looking for that third door, and it's just not there. With that in mind, let's continue with the chapter. We're on page 92. If you are satisfied he is a real alcoholic, begin to dwell on the hopeless feature of the malady. 
I can't eat and I can't keep from eating, I'm powerless. Show him from your own experience how the queer mental condition surrounding the first drink prevents normal functioning of the willpower. Don't at this stage refer to this book unless he has seen it and wishes to discuss it. And be careful not to brand him as an alcoholic. Let him draw his own conclusion. If he sticks to the idea that he can still control his drinking, tell him possibly he can if he's not too alcoholic but insist that if he is severely afflicted, there may be little chance he can recover by himself. Continue to speak of alcoholism as an illness, a fatal malady. Talk about the conditions of body and mind which accompany it. Keep his attention focused mainly on your personal experience. Explain that many are doomed who never realize their predicament. Doctors are rightly loath to tell alcoholic patients the whole story unless it will serve some good purpose but you may talk to him about the hopelessness of alcoholism because you offer a solution. Everybody told me when I was a kid, don't eat so much, don't eat so much, you'll feel better. But nobody told me how not to eat so much because for them, they didn't eat so much by not eating so much. It made no sense to me. How in the world can you sit in a restaurant and order a piece of pie and split a piece of pie with four other people and they're still flipping pie on the plate when you get your check and you leave it there. I just want to test power tools on that person's head. I, I can't help it. How do you do that? Well, God makes that possible. And only a spiritual awakening means that not only won't I compulsively overeat, but I haven't compulsively overeaten in over 18 years, and I have done so happily. I don't fight food anymore. I've lost over 500 pounds. I was 700, over 700 pounds when I waddled through the door of Overeaters Anonymous. Well, actually, it was, I wasn't 700 pounds at first. I came back and I was. But I've lost over 500 pounds, and I have done so happily. I do not fight food. I do not argue with Girl Scout cookies. I don't fight with Reese's peanut butter cups. Their voices are not heard by my ears. My ears aren't. They don't pick up on the on the screams of the Tootsie Rolls and the Heath Bars that screamed at me as a child. I don't hear them anymore. I've gone deaf. You will soon have your friend admitting he has many, if not all, of the traits of the alcoholic if his own doctor is willing to tell him he is alcoholic. So much the better, even though your protege may not have entirely admitted his condition, he has become very curious to know how you got well. Let him ask you that question, if he will. Tell him exactly what happened to you. Stress the spiritual feature freely. If the man be agnostic or atheist, make an emphatic. He does not have to agree with your conception of God. He can choose any conception he likes, provided it makes sense to him. The main thing is that he be willing to believe in a power greater than himself and that he live by spiritual principles. Very oftentimes, and I'm not knocking or criticizing this at all, 
I see people. I was just at the OA birthday in Los Angeles in January. What a fabulous convention that was. And I saw people taking pictures of their food and sending it by text to their sponsor. That's fine. If that works for you, that's great. And I know that there's people that call in their food every day, and that's great. That's fine. I'm not knocking that at all. That's okay. But here's what I don't see. I don't see enough of people talking to their sponsors about their prayer life, about their God life, about how they brought God into each and every one of the equations which caused them pause during the day. I have a constant companionship with my creator. And that evolved over time. And that evolved over a lot of work on my part. I came in here as a person who hated God. I thought God had screwed me over royally. And I went to synagogue as a kid and I saw people that were very wealthy. Why not I? I saw people that were very thin and very attractive. Why not I? I saw people that had young, wonderful parents. Why not I? And I thought God had really screwed me over. And without going into a lengthy dissertation on this, here is what I will say about that. I had to come to a God that I could love and that I knew loved me. Because as hard as I work on a food plan, I also have to do a job description of God. Who is the God that I'm going to be walking hand in hand with as I trudge this road of happy destiny? I had a God at first that I wouldn't want to meet in a dark alley. A punishing God. A judgmental God. A God of judgment and wrath. I need a God of judgment and wrath like I need a 24-pack of baby Ruth bars. I don't need judgment and wrath. This disease has punished me enough. And I have a God today that I can be with and be safe and protected from myself. This is a great journey. What a journey it is. I didn't come in here to find God. I came in here to find a way to eat all the food I wanted to eat and still be thin, and I didn't find that. But I have to work at that. <clears throat> I had to work at describing and, and encouraging that God description in my mind, in my heart, and in my life. God is the focal point of my existence. And anything I put before him, I will lose. Something very interesting also happened along the way. I found that I like myself more. I found that through service to this God, I like Harlan. I didn't used to like him. I used to wish him dead. I used to put food in his mouth that was going to kill him. I like him now because I keep doing self-esteemable actions. I keep doing self-esteemable acts through sponsorship, through just what we're talking about. God is very important, and yet we're so afraid to talk about it. If God runs them out, the Reese's peanut butter cups will run them right back in. Don't you worry about it. Don't be afraid to talk about God. 
when dealing with such a person, page 93, you had better use everyday language to describe spiritual principles. There's no use arousing any prejudice he may have against certain theological terms and conceptions about which he may already be confused. Don't raise such issues no matter what your convictions are. Your prospect may belong to a religious denomination. His religious education and training may be far superior to yours. In that case, he is going to wonder how you can add anything to what he already knows, but he will be curious to learn why his own convictions have not worked and why yours seem to work so well. He may be an example of the truth that faith alone is insufficient. To be vital, faith must be accompanied by self-sacrifice and unselfish constructive action. This is not a program for people who need it. This is not a program for people who want it. This is a program for people who do it. This is an action program. There's no chapter into thinking. There's no chapter into praying. There is a chapter into action. Let him see that you... Excuse me, let him see that you are not here to instruct him in religion. Admit that he probably knows more about it than you do. But call to his attention the fact that however deep his faith and knowledge, he could not have applied it or he would not drink. Perhaps your story will help him see where he has failed to practice the very precepts he knows so well. We represent no particular faith or denomination. We are dealing only with general principles excuse me, common to most denominations. These principles are the steps. And these steps are ancient. I have seen rabbis, priests, nuns, ministers, deacons, lay ministers come through the doors of Overeaters Anonymous, and some of them have recovered and some of them have not. Some of them have not. Because religion alone is not what we're talking about. I love the old expression, religion is for people who fear hell and spirituality is for people who live there. So I don't know if that, if that helps. But, just, you know, just being a priest, a minister, a rabbi, a nun, whatever, if that was enough, then they wouldn't be sitting in the meeting. We would, I, I told them we wouldn't be having this conversation. Outline the program of action, page 94, explaining how you made a self-appraisal. Oh, I just saw the clock how you straightened out your past and why you are now endeavoring to be helpful to him. It is important for him to realize that your attempt to pass this on to him plays a vital part in your own recovery. Actually, he may be helping you more than you're helping him. Make it plain he is under no obligation to you, that you hope only that he will try to help other alcoholics when he escapes his own difficulties. Suggest how important it is that he place the welfare of other people ahead of his own. Again, we're going back to that altruism. We're going back also to page 63, the third step promises that we had a new employer. Make it clear that he is not under pressure, that he needs to see you again if he doesn't want to. You should not be offended if he wants to call it off, for he has helped you more than you have helped him. If your talk has been sane, quiet, and full of human understanding, you may have perhaps made a friend. Maybe you have disturbed him about the question of alcoholism. This is all to the good. The more hopeless he feels, the better. Hopelessness. Remember when we did the doctor's opinion, I said that hopelessness means I'm out of ideas. While I still have ideas on how I'm going to do this myself, I'm untouchable by this program because if I have ideas, I'm going to go do them. I've got to be out of ideas. 
a very wonderful man who's dead now in Chicago. He used to poke my chest and he'd say, Are you out of ideas yet, kid? I was 30 years younger than anybody in that. He used to say, Are you out of ideas yet, kid? Because I have to be devoid of ideas. If I'm going to do the one day a week, I'm going to eat everything I want to and be abstinent six days a week program, that's not going to work. If I'm going to be on the program that says when I go to Fred's birthday or Mary's wedding, I'm going to have a piece of wedding cake no matter what, that doesn't work. I'm either doing this or I'm not. I'm either doing this or I'm not. I said that twice because it is very important for me to remember. I'm either in recovery or I'm in the illness. There is no middle ground. Maybe you have disturbed him back to 94. Of the question of alcoholism, this is all to the good. The more hopeless he feels, the better. He will be more likely to follow your suggestions. Your candidate may give reasons why he need not follow all of the program. Good luck on that. He may rebel at the thought of a drastic house cleaning, which requires discussion with other people. Do not contradict such views. Tell him you once felt as he does, but you doubt whether you would have made much progress had you not taken action. On your first visit, tell him about the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous in capital letters. If he shows interest, lend him your copy of this book. Unless your friend wants to talk further about himself, do not wear out your welcome. In other words, love him game. Give him a chance to think it over. If you do stay, let him steer the conversation in any direction he likes. Sometimes a new man is anxious to proceed at once, and you may be tempted to let him do so. This is sometimes a mistake. If he has trouble later, he is likely to say you rushed him. You will be most successful with alcoholics. If you do not exhibit any passion for crusade or reform, never talk down to an alcoholic from any moral or spiritual hilltop. Simply lay out the kit of spiritual tools for his inspection. Show him how they work for you. Very, very important. Show him. Don't just tell him. Show him. In other words, here I am. I fit in normal clothes. I can get in and out of my car. I can walk. I'm a part of life, and I don't fight food, and I don't fight the world. Offer him friendship and fellowship. Tell him if he wants to get well, you will do anything to help. If he's not interested in your solution, if he expects you to act only as a banker for his financial difficulties or a nurse for his sprees, you may have to drop him until he changes his mind. This he may do after he gets hurt some more. In other words, once again, Yiddish word of the day, the Yiddish expression of the day, loves him game. If he is sincerely interested and wants to see you again, ask him to read this book in the interval. After doing that, he must decide for himself whether, <clears throat> excuse me, whether he wants to go on. He should not be pushed or prodded by you, his wife, or his friends. If he is to find God, the desire must come from within. There's a good word, desire. D means derived from. Sire means the Father from God. Desire from God. If he thinks he can do the job in some other way or prefers some other spiritual approach, encourage him to follow his own conscience. We have no monopoly on God. 
We merely have an approach that worked with us, but point out that we alcoholics have much in common and that you would like in any case to be friendly, let it go at that top of 96. Do not be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once. Leah, I'm going to run over time, sorry. Search out another alcoholic and try again. You are sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you offer. We find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. If you leave such a person alone, he may soon become convinced that he cannot recover by himself. To spend too much time on any one situation is to deny some other alcoholic an opportunity to live and be happy. One of our fellowships failed entirely with his first half dozen prospects. That member of our fellowship that failed like that was Bill Wilson. So if you're scared to sponsor and you think you can't sponsor, Bill Wilson was not a great sponsor. Most of the early recoveries came out of Akron, not New York. The reason? Dr. Bob was a far better sponsor than Bill Wilson. Bill was terrible. He'd be dragging these guys off the bar stool, taking them home. A couple of them killed themselves in his apartment. Some of them stole his clothes, stole Lois's clothes, stole things and pawned them for money. They robbed them. They ate them out of house and home. But Bill forgot one thing. These guys don't want this. In other words, he forgot what we know was him game. Leave them alone. He often says that if he had continued to work on them, he might have deprived many others who have since recovered of their chance. Suppose you are now making your second visit to a man. He has read this volume and says he is prepared to go through with the 12 steps of the program of recovery. Having had the experience yourself, you can give him much practical advice. Having had the experience yourself, you can give him much practical advice as the understatement of the year. You may be the only copy of the big book he will ever read. You can show him, show him how you've recovered and no one else can. Let him know you are available if he wishes to make a decision. A decision is step three. We, are, we refer to step three as a decision and a beginning. To, and tell his story, but do not insist upon it if he prefers to consult someone else. In other words, don't take it personally. And that's what we get in our own way sometimes. We, we're scared to sponsor. We shouldn't be. It's, this is not about personal. It's not about, oh, I got Fred sober. It has nothing to do with that. My friend Kim G. in New Jersey, she said the other, just this, this week, she said something that hit true with me. She says, if you're scared to sponsor, I'd be scared not to sponsor because this is not an 11-step program. It's a 12-step program. I, I appreciated Kim for saying that. So if you're scared to sponsor, just lean on step two and let the book work for you. You don't have to figure out how to do anything. A chapter a day, keep it moving. Move it quickly. Get them through. It, don't make it into a master's dissertation from Dartmouth. Uh, you don't have to do that. You don't have to go such in depth. It's boom, boom, boom. A chapter a day, get them to the spiritual awakening. It's, it's, let the book do the work. Each chapter it will do the work for you. There's nothing to it. But do not insist upon it if he prefers to consult someone else. He may be broken homeless, bottom of 96. If he is, you might try to help him about getting a job or give him a little financial assistance. But you should not deprive your family or creditors of money they should have. 
Perhaps you will want to take the man into your home for a few days, but be sure you use discretion. Be certain he will be welcomed by your family, that he is not trying to impose upon you for money, connections, or shelter. Permit that and you only harm him. You will be making it possible for him to be insincere. Top of 97, you will be aiding in his destruction rather than in his recovery. Never avoid these responsibilities, but be sure you are doing the right thing if you assume them. Helping others is the foundation stone of your recovery. That sentence, helping others is the foundation stone of your recovery, should be tattooed on the inside of everybody's eyelids so we can study it as we're sleeping and as we're looking at the world. Because this is something that I I don't have the time or the vocabulary to express how vital that is. A kindly act once in a while isn't enough. You have to act the Good Samaritan every day if need be. It may mean the loss of many nights' sleep, great interference with your pleasures, interruptions to your business. It may mean sharing your money, your home, counseling frantic wives and relatives, innumerable trips to police courts, sanitariums, hospitals, jails, and asylums. Your telephone may jangle at any time of the day or night. Your wife may sometimes say she is neglected. A drunk may smash the furniture in your home or burn a mattress. You may have to fight with him as he is violent. Sometimes you will have to call a doctor and administer sedatives under his direction. Another time you may have to send for the police or an ambulance. Occasionally you will have to meet such conditions. Not all the time today. I wouldn't think that these are conditions you're going to find prevalent today. We seldom allow an alcoholic to live in our homes for a long time not good for him and if it's, it sometimes creates serious complications in a family though an alcoholic does not respond there is no reason why you should neglect his family you should continue to be friendly to them the family should be offered your way of life should they accept and practice spiritual principles there's a much better chance that the head of the family excuse me will recover and even though he continues to drink the family will find life more bearable for the type of alcoholic who is able and willing to get well little charity in the ordinary sense of the word is needed or wanted the men who cry for money or shelter before conquering alcohol are on the wrong track yet we do great we go to great extremes to provide each other with these very things when such action is warranted this may seem inconsistent but we think it is not I had conditions in front of God that I was going to, if I, you give me a girlfriend, you give me money, you give me a thin body, and then I'll do whatever you want. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. And I found that out the hard way. I found out that I had to change my priorities. And speaking of priorities, let's go to the next paragraph when we're going to talk about them. It is not a matter of giving that is in question, but when and how to give. That often makes the difference between failure and success. The minute we put our work on a service plane, the alcoholic commences to rely upon our insistence rather than upon God. He clamors for this or that, claiming he cannot master alcohol until his material needs are cared for. This is the shortest sentence in the book. It's one word, nonsense, or BS, or narishkeit. No way we can recover no matter what as long as we take the action. Some of us have taken very hard knocks to learn this truth. Job or no job, wife or no wife, we simply do not stop drinking so long as we place dependence upon other people 
ahead of dependence on God. I am dependent on God. And when I do my job description of God, it doesn't matter whether a person is an atheist or an agnostic. It doesn't matter whether the person is very religious or not religious at all. But there's two things I need to know about God besides the fact that if I have a God with skin, I'm doomed. There are two things I need to know about God. There is one, and it's not me. There is one, and it's not me. Burn the idea into the consciousness of every man that he can get well regardless of anyone or anything. It doesn't say anything, but that's me. The only condition is that he trusts in God and clean house. Step two, the two most underutilized steps, two and ten, two and ten, two and ten. Now the domestic problem, there may be divorce, separation, or just strained relations. When your prospect has made such reparation as he can to his family and has thoroughly explained to them the new principles by which he is living, he should proceed to put those principles into action at home. That is, if he's lucky enough to have a home. Though his family be at fault in many respects, he should not be concerned about that. He should concentrate on his own spiritual demonstration. Argument and fault-finding are to be avoided like the plague. In many homes, this is a difficult thing to do, but it must be done if any results are to be expected. If persisted in for a few months, the effect on a man's family is sure to be great. The most incompatible people will discover they have a basis upon which they can meet. Little by little, the family may see their own defects and admit them. These can be discussed in an atmosphere of helpfulness and friendliness. After they've seen tangible results, the family will perhaps want to go along. These things will come to pass naturally and in good time, provided, however, the alcoholic continues to demonstrate that he can be sober, considerate, and helpful, and regardless of what anyone says or does. And how do we do that? We work the steps. We don't will. My broken brain can't fix my broken brain. Of course, we all fall much below this standard many times, but we must try to repair the damage immediately, lest we pay the penalty by a spree. If there be divorce or separation, there should be no undue haste for the couple to get together. The man should be sure of his recovery. The wife should fully understand his new way of life. If their old relationship is to be resumed, it must be on a better basis since the former did not work. This means a new attitude and spirit all around. Sometimes it is to the best interest of all concerned that a couple remain apart. Obviously, no rule can be laid down. Let the... Let, <clears throat> Let the alcoholic continue his program day by day. When the time for living together has come, it will be apparent to both parties. Let no alcoholic say he cannot recover unless he has his family back. Again, priorities. This just isn't so. In some cases, the wife will never come back for one reason or another. Remind the prospect that his recovery is not dependent upon people. It is dependent upon his relationship with God. We have seen men get well whose families have not returned at all. We have seen others slip when the family came back too soon. Here are your 12-step promises. I'm rushing a little bit because there's points I want to make when I'm done with the chapter, and I'm really pushing the time here. But this is your 12-step promises. Both you and, your new, and the new man must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress. The way I make progress is to keep working. If you persist, remarkable things will happen. 
when we look back, we realize that the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. Follow the dictates of a higher power, and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world no matter what your present circumstances. This is an amazing journey of sponsorship. The people that I have met and the miracles that I have experienced in my own life, I do not have the time to even tell you. I have experienced life and I have experienced an unbelievable satisfaction of pure happiness to see someone coming in with that pall of the food around them, that, that cloak of the illness all around them, and to see them helping others and catching fire. Oh, it's a joy. I wouldn't want to cheat anyone out of this. I have sponsored people from all walks of life all walks of life. And it is just an amazing thing to be a part of. The true love and the true friendship, the kinship that comes with the speaking and the understanding of the language of the heart. There is no better thing that I have experienced in my life. Don't miss it. Don't quit five minutes before the miracle. If you're scared to sponsor, use the book. You don't have to think about what to say or do. I have a 100% recovery rate with my sponsees. I recover 100% of the time. They don't always recover. I have many sponsees that are eating or dead. It happens. It happens. But the things I've experienced have made my life elevate to a plane of existence beyond my wildest comprehension. Page 100. When working with a man and his family, you should take care not to participate in their quarrels. You may spoil a chance of being helpful if you do, but urge upon a man's family that he has been a very sick person and you should be treated accordingly. You should warn against arousing resentment or jealousy. You should point out that his defects of character are not going to disappear overnight. Show Excuse me, show them that he has entered upon a period of growth. Ask them to remember when they are impatient the blessed fact of his sobriety. If you have been successful in solving your own domestic problems, tell the newcomer's family how that was accomplished. In other words, don't give advice, but talk about yourself. Tell them, uh, in this way, you can set them on the right track without becoming critical of them. The story of how you and your wife settled your difficulties is worth any amount of criticism. Assuming we are spiritually fit, we can do all sorts of things alcoholics are not supposed to do. People have said we must not go where liquor is served. We must not have it in our homes. We must shun friends who drink. We must avoid moving pictures which show drinking scenes. We must not go into bars. Our friends must hide their bottles if we go to their houses. We mustn't drink or be reminded about alcohol at all. Our experience shows us that this is not necessarily so. That's nonsense. Narshkite. We must we meet these conditions every day. An alcoholic who cannot meet them still has an alcoholic mind. There's something the matter with his spiritual status. The only chance of sobriety would be someplace like the Greenland Ice Cap, but even then an Eskimo might turn up with a bottle of scotch and ruin everything. 
Ask any woman who has sent her husband to distant places on the theory he would escape the alcohol problem. And this is something Bill and Lois did. They went from city to country. In our belief, any scheme of combating alcoholism which proposes to shield the sick man from temptation is doomed to failure. And that's why some of you get critical of me because I mentioned Reese's peanut butter cups or Heath bars or Kit Kat bars or whatever. If I say Kit Kat bar and you go out and eat 20 of them, you are going to do that anyway. It's no secret that, that candy bars are in the shopping, are in the uh, grocery store. It's no secret that every time you drive down the street, you see fast food ads on your TV and see the signs. And I, if I say Kit Kat bar and you go out and eat 20 of them, that's on you. That's not on me. If the alcoholic tries to shield himself, he may succeed for a time, but he usually winds up with a bigger explosion than ever. We have tried these methods, these attempts to do the impossible have always failed. The key word is always and failed. So our rule is not to avoid a place where there is drinking if we have a legitimate reason for being there. This includes bars, nightclubs, dances, receptions, weddings, and even plain ordinary whoopee parties. I don't know that I've ever been to a whoopee party, but I'm not, I, I would be certain that I would like to attend one at some point. To a person who has had experience with an alcoholic, this may seem like tempting providence, but it isn't. You will note that we have made an important qualification. Therefore, ask yourself on each occasion, have I any good social, business, or personal reason for going to this place, or am I expecting to steal a little vicarious pleasure from the atmosphere of such places? If you answer these questions satisfactorily, you need have no apprehension. Go or stay away, whichever seems best, but be sure you are on solid spiritual ground before you start and that your motive in going is thoroughly good. Do not think of what you will get out of the occasion Think of what you can bring to it. That's a very big key because, again, it ties back into altruism and it ties into service. But if you are shaky, you had better work with another alcoholic instead. Again, working with another alcoholic will save the day when all other measures fail. 102. Why sit with a long face in places where there is drinking, sighing about the good old days? If it is a happy occasion, try to increase excuse me, the pleasure of those there, if a business, if it's a, if a, a business occasion, go and attend to your business enthusiastically. If you are with a person who wants to eat in a bar, by all means, go along. Let your friends know they are not to change their habits on your account at a proper time and place. Explain to all your friends why alcohol disagrees with you. If you do this thoroughly, few people will ask you to drink. While you are drinking, you are withdrawing from life little by little. Now you are getting back into the social life of this world. Don't start to withdraw just because your friends drink liquor. Your job now is to be at the place where you may be of maximum helpfulness to others, so never hesitate to go anywhere if you can be helpful. That's a very big key. If I can be helpful, that will dictate where... When I'm deciding where to go, where can I do the most good for God? Where can I do the most good? That will be where I want to go. You should not hesitate to visit the most sordid spot on earth on such an errand. Keep on the firing line of life with these motives, and God will keep you unharmed. I know it's late, but I have to tell this story when we talk about sponsorship. My friend Scott, who's dead now, he was a Broadway actor. 
very, very classically good-looking. The girls used to swoon when he would walk into a room. He was dark, and he had the dark brown, black hair. And, oh, my God, the girls used to go crazy for him. And he was a drug addict and an alcoholic. And he married another Broadway actress, and they moved out to Los Angeles so that they could try to get into movies and television, which they never did. While living in Los Angeles, he became very active in Alcoholics Anonymous. One day, he got a call. It was a Saturday night, and he had to go out to a motel in East Los Angeles. And at the hotel was a man that had called into the AA office, and they get to this place, and it is a very bad neighborhood in East L.A., and they go into this room. There's two of them. And they talk to this guy for about an hour, and he's falling asleep. And they determine he's not, they were prepared to call the hospital, they were prepared to do a lot of things, but he's falling asleep. He's not a danger to others, he's not a danger to himself. And they let him fall asleep and they leave. Five years later, he is speaking at an alcathon in San Diego, California. He finishes, and a man walks up to him and says, are you Scott? He says, yes, I am. He says, you saved my life. Scott says, I don't think I know you. Who are you? He says, do you remember the day that you came to the motel in East L.A. and you talked to that guy on the bed for about an hour? And Scott says, yes, I remember. Whatever happened, he says, the guy died. The guy died of his alcoholism not long after you came to visit him. He says, but I was hiding under the bed. I heard every word you said, and I haven't had a drink since that night. You never know how it's going to work. Any idiot can count the seeds in an apple, but only God can count the apples in a seed. You never know how this is going to go down. You don't know, once you cast these seeds out there, how this is going to come back to you, who's going to benefit, but one thing is for sure, God's not going to waste any of it. The hell that you went through the pain and the torture that you went through, God's not going to waste it. He's not going to waste it in me, and he's not going to waste it in you. Any idiot can count the seeds in an apple, but only God can count the apples in a seed. Many of us will keep liquor in our homes. I'm at the bottom of 102. We often need, sorry, Leah, I, I know you're going to get upset with me. Needed to carry green recruits to a severe hangover. Some of us will, and I will take questions and answers. I, I promise. Some of us still serve it to our friends, provided they are not alcoholic, but some of us think we should not serve liquor to anyone. We never argue the question. We feel that each family, in the light of their own circumstances, ought to decide for themselves. We are careful never to show intolerance or hatred of drinking as an institution. Experience shows that such an attitude is not helpful to anyone. Every new alcoholic looks for this spirit among us and is immensely relieved when he finds we are not witch burners. A spirit of intolerance might repel alcoholics 
whose lives could have been saved had it not been for such stupidity. We would not even do the cause of temperate drinking any good, for not one drinker in a thousand likes to be told anything about alcohol by one who hates it. Someday we hope that Alcoholics Anonymous will help the public to a better realization of the gravity of the alcoholic problem, but we shall be of little use if our attitude is one of bitterness or hostility. Drinkers will not stand for that for it. After all, our problems were of our own making. Bottles were only a symbol. Besides, we have stopped fighting anything or anybody. We have to. Just want to go briefly to, doc, to Dr. Bob's Nightmare on page 181, and I want to talk a little bit about the 12th step, and then we'll be done, I promise. This is from Dr. Bob's Nightmare, and it's on page 181, and we're talking about working with others in his story here. It says, it is a sense of duty. It is a sense of pleasure. Because in so doing, I am paying my debt to the man who took time to pass it on to me. Because every time I do it, I take out a little more insurance for myself against a possible slip. And as I look, and this, will, I'm going to close with this. As I look at the 12th step, I see that it is a three-part step. And it says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. That means I have to be in a position where I've had a change of body and mind, excuse me, mind and behaviors. I'm the bottom of, of uh, the 10th step there uh, on page 84 and into page 85. It will describe that I'm not fighting anything or anyone. And if I'm there, then I'm ready to sponsor. To carry this message, we are carrying a message whether we want to be carrying one or not to carry the message of the big book. The message is the big book. The message is the big book. And I'm reminded of my little daughter when she was about 19 months old. It was August. We were living in Eugene, Oregon. And my then wife had just done a massive shop. I was in total relapse at that time. Massive food shop. And I'm sitting there and we're having this conversation. And my little daughter, my little daughter, who's just looks like my dad. I just wanted to eat her in those days. She was so cute. And we're talking, and my little daughter was hearing the message that I was carrying in relapse. She opened up the refrigerator with her little diaper. She put her hand up there. She opened it up. She turned her head to my ex-wife and said, shit, Esther, there's nothing in here. That's the message I was giving this kid. A few years later, we were watching a television show about a guy and his brother who won the lottery, and they were going around making amends to people. And I'm in good recovery at this time. She looks at the TV. She looks at me. She looks at the TV. She looks at me, and she says, those guys are just doing their eighth or ninth step, right, Dad? That's how far she had come. To the world, you're a person. To a person who's coming in here and suffering you can be the world. You can light them up. You can give them hope. And you can give them yourself. You can sponsor. It is a 12-step program. As Kim G says, I'd be afraid not to sponsor. And I'm going to close with two things. Dr. Bob, in speaking of this in 1950 at the Cleveland Convention, just months before he died, he said, let's keep this simple. Let's always be aware that we have to keep it simple. The complexities are only of interest to the psychologist and the clinician. And he said, 
no man looks as good unless he is bending down and helping a man up to the rung on the ladder on which he now stands. And let's always be aware of that erring member among us, the tongue. Let's use it judiciously to help somebody else. This is a wonderful, wonderful journey. This is the most fantastic way of life imaginable. I wake up in the morning to a God that loves me and a God that I trust and a God that I believe in, and that took a lot of work. And I look in the mirror and I see someone who does self-esteemable action every day, and I like me. Join us on this path. Join us on this journey and you will see miracles that God has crafted uniquely for you. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Harlan, for illuminating Chapter 7, working with others for all of us. Thank you for your personal experience and insights this morning. Much appreciated. Harlan's contact information will be offered at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. And we're now going to transition to questions. If you have a question for Harlan, press star 1 to unmute and identify yourself, please. Jody, JDW, San Diego. Jody. Kelly A. Kelly A. Jamie W., San Diego. Jamie W. Did I... Wendy M. Wendy Morizzi. M. Chaya F. Rizka A. Morizzi. Who was after Morizzi? I'm sorry. Chaya F. Rizka A. Rizka A. Chaya, I got you. Was I wrong on the <laughs> Kelly? Yes, it's Sally. Sally. I'm sorry, uh, it's Sally A. Gotcha, Sally. Thank you for speaking up there. Okay, let's stop with that group. Jody, you're thank up. Thank you, Leah. Thank you, Leah, and thank you, Harlan. Great to hear you once again, Harlan. Thank you, Jody. This is Jody EQ in California. Harlan, you you mentioned uh, a chapter a day. Mm-hmm. And if you could elaborate on that. Do you read the whole chapter with your protege, or how do you do that? Right now, I'm a little overwhelmed with people that I'm sponsoring. Um, I also want to refer to Kim G. She says 5% of us are sponsoring like 95% of us. I use my podcasts to move through faster. I have uh, a person that I'm sponsoring that took all the podcasts that I've done on vision uh, from the doctor's opinion through chapter six. Now I've done chapter seven. And I will have them listen to a chapter a day. One of the biggest mistakes I, I see in sponsorship is going too slow, too slow, too slow, too slow. Uh, people are dying because they're dieting with group support because we're moving too slow. If I could stay abstinent anything like 60, 90 days until I get to the spiritual awakening, I wouldn't be in OA. So, but if I had to, in the beginning, before these podcasts, I worked with them every day. I'd have them call me at like 5 o'clock in the morning. And many of you who are listening used to groan and moan, oh, why do I have to fall so early? Well, I have a life too. So if you want this, you have to go through it. And I would go through the chapter just like I just did with them every day. But a chapter a day is not is not outlandish. It's abs- they should be at Chapter 5 within five days, four days. And um, 
they should be done with the fourth step. The fourth step shouldn't take more than a few hours. It is not this big dissertation. We're not, we're not getting master's degrees here from Yale or Dartmouth or, or anything like that. You know who you're mad at. You know what they did to you. You know what you fear or who you fear. You know your sexual harms done others. This should go very quickly. So, yeah, I use my podcast now. I'm a little overwhelmed. When I'm less overwhelmed, I will read the chapters with them on the phone if they're remote or I'll meet them at the coffee place over here by my house if they're local. Thank you. Thank you, Jody. Thanks, Jody. Sally A., you're up. Thank you so much for your service, continued service to all of us, Leah. Um, Harlan, I, I wanted to ask you to speak to us about um, how you gauge when to continue to call, as you did with me when I had fallen into the food about six weeks ago. I got out of the food largely because of you and others who continually called to uh, visit the uh, quicksand that I was swimming in and continually asked, what can I do for you? I wonder if you could talk about how you gauge when to um, make those phone calls and when to stay away and let that person be done. Okay. Um, in other words, um, what we're talking about there is how am I being received when I'm talking to the person? Is the person really showing me that they want to recover or are they showing me get out of my face? Um, and that's how I gauge it. I will meet you where you're at. I, I will match, mirror, and reflect your enthusiasm. I will gauge the enthusiasm. When I'm sponsoring people and they're kind of, oh, well, you know, whatever, then I give them, oh, well, you know, whatever. But when I see a person and they want it, I, get, I, I do the best I can. In your situation, when you were in that quagmire, I could tell that you were desperate to get out of it. I could tell that you wanted the phone calls, and that's why I kept calling. That, and I think you're wonderful. So, you know, but you know I'm crazy about you, Sally, but that's, you know, but that's how I gauge it. Thanks for the question, though. Thank you, Sally. Jamie. Did I catch... Mm-hmm that name correctly. Jamie? Star one to unmute. Maybe go to Wendy and we'll see if Jamie can come back. Sorry, Jamie W. San Diego. There you go. Thanks, Jamie. There you go. Sorry about that. Hey, Harlan G. Hey, Leah. Good to hear from you guys. Um, Harlan G., um, what are your methods of finding sponsees? And another part could I sponsor an AA member? Um, I would think not. Uh, if are you an alcoholic? No. Then I would not. There are millions and bazillions of AAs that they can sponsor this person. Um, but I think it would be best if if they got an alcoholic sponsor. I mean, the book is the same, the steps are the same, but I think that the identification would be clearly lacking. You really don't have experience with being an alcoholic, do you? Mm-mm. You don't no, have any not. personal experience. Why no, would they cheat them? Why would they cheat themselves out of the experience of having someone that has that identification? Remember that we're not just bringing information; we're bringing identification, which you and I don't have. Um, okay. 
What was the other part of your question? I forgot. I'm sorry. What are your methods finding sponsees? Uh, they seem to find me. Uh, I that is the least of my that is the least of my problems. I I get phone calls every day. Um, I get phone calls all the time from people that want me to sponsor them, and I can't take everyone on. So I have, and if some of you are listening, you're probably laughing now. <laughs> I have a loyal a loyal group of people that I've sponsored that I will pass them off to. And um, so, yeah, the, the, le- the, the least amount of problem that I have in my life is finding sponsors. They seem to find me. Can I be added to the list of people that you send them off to? Why don't you call me later? And my sponsor has kind of insisted that I not sponsor women, but I will, I will, I will help you. Uh, I will definitely help, me find help you. Sponsors. Yeah, I will. Yeah. I will help you find someone that that I I think will be you know whatever. But you can also Thank find you. them on the second hour of Vision for You. If you listen to the second unrecorded hour, there is a place at the end of the meeting where they will where people will call in who need sponsors and people who are sponsors. There's also a time to identify as a newcomer at the very beginning of that second hour, and that second unrecorded hour is an absolutely invaluable tool for finding sponsors. And uh, there are many sponsors in that San Diego area. That Southern California area is ripe with, with people who are in wonderful recovery. I just did a, a big book study there in Vista, California, and I just did a big book day in San Diego, California, not long ago. And I know a lot of the people down there, and there are just, you know, just tremendous, tremendous sponsorship and tremendous recovery down there. But the second hour, if you're looking for a vision sponsor, and this goes for anybody that doesn't live in San Diego, the second hour of vision for you is the place to start your search. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks, Thank you. Wendy M. Wendy M. Star one to unmute. Hi, good morning. This is Wendy M. from Colorado, Recovered. Hi, Um, Wendy. Hi, Harlan. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. I I heard what I needed to hear. And, Leah, thank you for your service always. So I have several questions, but I'm going to try to make it tight. One is just um, one of my sponsees, um, just completed her 12th step, and she wants to dip her toe a little bit into um, sponsoring. So she was thinking she'd just do a doctor's opinion for a while. Um, and my sense is that she needs to immediately be sponsoring. Um, mm-hmm. And then with that question is how many sponsees does one take on? And then the second question is I have a prospect. She's showing me that she's in fear and she's um, not surrendered. Um, mm-hmm. fully, but she wants to work the program. Do you wait for a sponsee to be entirely ready, fully surrendered, let's go, they want it? Or when, you say to- they're, when you say they're not entirely when, uh, ready, Wendy, are they still eating? They're restricting at the moment. So they're, the they're anorexic, they're restricting. Okay. When yeah. you're on your food plan for two days, we, we go full speed. Buckle up, here we go. Um, Bill and Bob put Bill Dotson in a room for two days. Two days later, they returned, and they told him about the program. 
You need a couple of days. You need to be free from the physical craving. Um, if she's really willing and she wants to do this, she's going to have to stick to her food plan. And for bulimics and anorexics, I understand that it's going to be different from the other side. But it's the same program. It's the same illness. It's the same everything. Um, as far as sponsoring, absolutely. And I don't know where this stuff is. I'm not being critical of just the doctor's opinion. I don't understand this. You're either sponsoring or you're not. After the doctor's opinion, which takes like one hour, an hour and a half, now what do you do? Just let the person go? I don't understand that. That's, that's, that's a little mishubit to me. Um, how many sponsors, should sponsor, sponsees, sorry, should you have? Um, as many as God sends me. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, as many as, you know, here, here's a conversation I never had. You know, I'm really busy today. I don't think I'm going to get to McDonald's to have my French fries. That's a conversation I never had. You know, I don't really want to wake up that early in the morning, so I, I don't think I'm going to go to Dunkin' Donuts today. That's a conversation I never had. Now, all of a sudden, I want to serve God, and I'm going to put limits and quotas on how many people I'm going to help. What I should be doing is letting God decide, and mm. then once I've developed a group of people that are recovered, some of them can start picking up the slack as well. But I let God decide how many sponsees I should have. And as far as sponsorship goes, this is not an 11-step program. It's a 12-step program. And so as a 12-step, I have to sponsor. I must do it. I hope that answers it. Thank you. Thanks, Wendy M. Mara Z. Good morning, Leah. Can I be heard? Yes. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Leah, for your service. Thank you, Harlan G., yet again. Um, mm-hmm. I'm having um, a crisis of ego, and so mm-hmm. I need, I need, I've had, I've had conversations with a few folks, but I'm, I'm very interested in your insights on this subject. Mm-hmm. I am visually observing um, a couple of individuals at face-to-face meetings who are obviously um, not experiencing physical recovery um, over a period of months, mm-hmm. not just, you know, from one week to the next, but over a period of months. And both of them are announcing themselves as being available to sponsor. Um, and I've bitten my tongue and I've talked about it with others. I'm torn between the tradition half that says it is, behooves me to make sure this program is going forth the way it should be, mm-hmm. and it's not my job, I'm not God. Mm-hmm. I would be very curious to hear your insights into this situation. Okay. Maura, this is something that has plagued OA for a long time, and um, there's not a lot we can do. What I have done on occasion, because you could get me all started here, I can go off on a sidetrack. We are hugging each other to death. And you see people that have 10 and 20 years in OA, but they're not recovered, not even close. They're remarkably bigger today than they were 10 years ago, five years ago, whatever. What I will do on occasion is I will come up to a person and say, is there anything I could do to help you? 
Is there anything I could do to help you? And I do it one-on-one. I do it very quietly. I don't do it in front of anyone. I will make sure that I do that. And if they say no, love some game. But I've planted a seed. I've planted a seed. And every one of those redwoods in California started with a seed. We don't know how long it's going to take. But I've reached out to that person. I've done everything I can do. After that, it's up to God. But what you can do, Maura, is you can bring your recovery into that very same room. And you can bring your recovery and show people how you have recovered. And if they want what you have, they will, they will ask you how they've achieved it. And when people start talking about how you have helped them, then the people that can't get blood out of a turnip because the people that they're turning to for help are eating, you will find that you will contribute to the greater good. Keep recovering. Recover, recover, recover. Those are the three things you can do. Recover, recover, and recover. You've heard me say that many times. And Maura, you keep bringing yourself into that meeting. Carry your big book. Carry your recovery. And the rest is up to God. I think it's in. Thank you. Thank you, Harlan. Okay. Appreciate that very much. No problem. Thank you, Maura. Rifka A. Rifka A, star one to unmute. Rifka A, can you hear me? Yes, yes go right ahead. Hi, Leah. Thank you so much for your service. And Harlan, thank you for a wonderful message. Thank um, you. My name is Rifka A from uh, Israel, and um, I'm recovered, presently sponsoring very grateful today to be abstinent. My question to you is, and I I wonder what your opinion is on this. Um, if you have someone who calls you and they said, you know, Harland, I'm um, presently on my third step, but um, I, I've relapsed coming back and um, I need to do a 10th step. Would you take my 10th step for me? What do you say to a person who has relapsed, who is very familiar with working 10 step before, and they're on their third step? I would say to them, let's review the first step. And let's look at the doctor's opinion where it says, the only, uh, the only thing we have to suggest is entire abstinence. I would say, let's put the food down. And let's begin again. That's what I would say to that person. You're kidding yourself. You're kidding yourself. If you're eating, we need to go back to step one. You need a couple of days of clean abstinence, and we need to go back to the doctor's opinion. That's what I would say to that person. Exactly what I would say to that person. That's all I got on that one. Thank you, Rivka. Just kidding yourself. Okay, Rivka, thank you for the question, though. And star one, Chaya, it's your turn. Hi, thank you. This is Chaya S. from Chicago, Harlan. Chaya! So, um, I have a, uh, we're a Lansman, 
Um, and thank you, oh, Leah. So this is my question. You mentioned that there were um, three parts of tw- step 12. Yes. So I got There's two. Three parts. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics. You know what? I made a mistake. I didn't. I didn't say it. And to practice these principles in all of okay. our affairs. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. I got carried away with the time, and I had to push it, and I didn't say the third part. And to practice these principles, what are the principles? The principles are the steps in all of our affairs. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome, Bill Defia. It's good to hear your voice. (laughs) Thanks, Chaya. Harlan, shall we take another group? Hiya also can mean animal, and Vildachaya is a wild animal. My mother would say, you're a Vildachaya, you're a Vildachaya. She would scream at me all the time like that. Okay, anyway, sure, I'll take as many as you want. Okay, Jackie excellent. B. Nancy R. Nancy R. Kathy T. Kathy T. Cheryl A. Cheryl A. Lily J. Lily J. I'm not catching the first name. Millie. Okay, gotcha. Millie, Millie, thanks. Got it. Uh, Anyone else? Jackie B. Yep, Jackie B. Got you. Naomi O.T. Naomi. Sarah W. Sarah W. Okay. Rivka A. Back. All right, Jackie B., let's start with you. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Go ahead, Jackie. Okay. Hi. Thank you, Leah. Thank you, Harlan. Um, thank you, Harlan, for mentioning the convention because I booked it already. I'll be there. Good. I will um, be there too. Good. <laughs> um, I really am grateful for um, this topic because now I'm available to sponsor and uh, I've been getting some calls. And, some, you know, I also tell people to listen to some of the podcast-specific ones that, that had got me into it. Also, when I go to face-to-face meetings, I um, tell I also indicate that I'm a sponsor available for Big Book to the Vision for You way of doing things, which I think is good. My question is, is that um, when, like, old-timers from my meetings come and say to me, Jackie, can you sponsor me? And I explain what, how I got it this time around. Um, they, I put it out there that they sh- should listen to the podcast first before wanting to, you know, do it this way. Is that the right thing to do, or should I just say, okay, let's start? Um, you know... I would say just let's start. You know, my okay. instinct says let's just get going. I mean, okay. how much how much fiddling around do we need to do? We need to get going. One, okay. Again, one of the biggest reasons why you see people struggling like they struggle is we're making this into something that it's not. We're not getting a master's degree from the University of Colorado here. We're okay. doing something that needs to go to move. It needs to move. Schnell, move. And we need to get these people through the steps so they can have a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps. And we can go back later and we can do a more in-depth kind of situation. 
but as they teach the program to others and they get exposed to other things in meetings or on, on Vision for You and, and on the phone meetings or both, we're going to learn different things. The okay. most important objective we have is to emancipate the mental twist from focusing in on the solution of the food. And, and one other question. Oh. Go on. Just one other question. I noticed I had to start the big book, but also how do you do that initial thing when they have to find their food? What is their, what is their um, uh, trigger? I don't yucks with that. I send them to a nutritionist. I, what I do gotcha. is That's I, initially, what I, wanted to know. I initially put you in touch with uh, the Dignity of Choice, which is an OA pamphlet. There's two food plans on there. Uh, pick one and stick to it. And then I would say, while you're sticking to that, go see somebody that knows what you should be eating, that knows. I use a nutritionist. I okay. use a nutritionist. I, I'm not recommending go to, go to Fred M. as a nutritionist. I'm not, you know, this is not AA. Jackie, this is not AA. In AA, Clancy Immeslin, who's the senior person in AA, and the person who comes in today is their first meeting ever, they're on the same alcohol plan. You don't drink. This is not right. AA. There are needs. There are situations. Uh, I'm a 62-year-old man. Should I be on the same food plan as a 31-year-old anorexic? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. My food plan changes over time. So I start with the dignity of choice, go to a nutritionist that knows what we're doing, that understands it, and if you see that they understand it, they can be much more helpful. I, you know, I'm not a nutritionist and I don't play one on TV. I hope that answers it. Thank, yes, thank you so much. Have a lovely day, both of you. And you everybody. too, Jackie. Bye-bye. Nancy R. Nancy. Star one, Nancy. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Nancy R. I'd like to thank both of you for your service. I got a lot from it this morning. I have one question for Harlan. <clears throat> Would you... Uh, Elaborate on uh, the amount of time you spend with your sponsees once you've taken them through the steps. Do you, uh, how often do you communicate with them? Every day. Every day they will touch in. They will touch base with me on ten step calls, and every day if they touch base with me on a ten step call, that's fine. If they just want to let me know what's going on, I encourage people to develop a God squad, and anybody that I sponsor one of their first jobs is to develop a God squad. And what they very simply will do is they will go to the website of Vision for You. They will go on the Vision for You website and they will look at people that they want to call. Maybe they've heard the person sharing. Maybe they haven't. But develop a God squad of people you can do 10-step calls with. Develop people that you can sort of touch base with. And the God squad will change over time as people drop in, drop out, whatever they do. If there are people that I know from here, because I live in Scottsdale, which backs up to Phoenix, but if there are people that I just know from here, perhaps they're not on vision, I tell them all the time, you've got to develop a God squad. I can't be the be-all and the end-all. I can't. I can't. I'm, I'm only human. I have a business and I have a German shepherd and, you know, all that. And I do a lot of traveling for OA and so on. So, um but I will hear from them pretty much every single day, every day, Nancy. Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you, Nancy. It's good to hear your voice. Thank you, Nancy. Kathy T., star one, your turn. 
Cassie. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yep. Here we go. <laughs> um, you had talked about telling someone to put down the food for two days before mm-hmm. you start with the doctor's opinion and the rest mm-hmm. of the steps. And you had mentioned the passage in the book about um, even an Eskimo could spoil things mm-hmm. because a bottle could show up when they're trying to avoid <clears throat> going places where there's, where there's alcohol or, you know, eating for us. Mm-hmm. So are they supposed to rely on themselves for the first no. two days? You know, sit on no. their hands or do what I ask God? How, how does that work to Chaffee, put down the food they, for two days? They are powerless. They are not helpless. They can get to a meeting. They can make outreach calls. They can listen to podcasts. It is easier to recover today than it has ever been in the history of planet Earth. At my disposal right now, if I don't even have a computer, you can go to your public library and you can use their computers for free. You can go on a computer and listen to a speaker. You can listen to a Sunday special edition. You can listen to a daily meeting. You have a meeting at your you have meetings, hundreds of them at your disposal at any given time of day or night. You have people that you can call that will talk to you at any hour of the day or night. You are powerless as a newcomer coming in, but Kathy, they are not help they are helpless, but they are not they are they are powerless, but they're not helpless. There you go. They are powerless but not helpless. And if they really want to, they can put down the food for two days while we get started. But you're going to have to separate yourself from the physical craving. While you're loaded on Tootsie Rolls or you're loaded on McDonald's French fries, there's really nothing I can do for you. There's nothing anybody can do for you. You're clouded. You're altered. The food alters you. It alters your mind. It alters your perception of reality. We don't realize that it does, but it does. They are powerless, but they are not helpless. Thanks for the question, Kathy. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy. Cheryl A., star one. Can you hear me, Laura? Yes. Mm-hmm. I know that Hi, this voice. is Cheryl. <laughs> Hi, this is Cheryl A., recovered compulsive overeater from Boston. Hi, Harlan. Um, Hi, I um, thank you both for your service. And... Um, um, I, I just want to first thank you, Harlan, and just let you know how grateful I am um, for what you shared and for what you have shared over so many years and um, the gratitude I have to have shared the journey with you over the last 29 years. Um, my question for you is, um, as we get into deeper levels of recovery and peeling back the onion. And as we work the steps, we first put the food down. And then as we get into the fourth and the fifth and then the um, seventh, you know, we, we become aware of character defects. And then we do 10 steps. But there are some times where we may identify a defect that actually may be related to an ism, another ism. Maybe it's workaholism. Maybe it's, I don't know, angerism. It, but there's like something that's not just a defect. It's actually um, playing a role that is triggering our disease. Um, and that's sort of the pipe that's bursting. It may not be a substance, it may be, but it may very well be um, at that level. I'm just curious, um, and, and the only way to progress, of course, is to put our, our drug down. So that might be workloads. Do you 
have you ever worked with people when they get deeper into those inner layers of that um, onion and how the disease is manifesting itself? Were, have you ever worked with people? I mean, what does that mean to put it down? What, what, what does that mean to be abstinent on that okay. level? Okay. Um, good question. And it's so good to hear your voice. You know I love you. I know I'm crazy about you. Um, what happens over time is, and it, it's very hard to tell people this, to explain it to them. When you're five years in or you're three years in, you think you kind of got this down, you're not eating, you're, you're doing fine, and then about seven or eight years in, ten years in, you start discovering that something else is brewing. And when you're 15 years in, you realize that when you were 10 years in, you shouldn't have been running around unescorted by an armed guard. And when you're 20 years in, so things happen. What I am discovering today are things that I didn't even know were wrong 15 years ago. I didn't know the level of self-loathing that I held into my heart 15 years ago that I'm getting in touch with now, that I am making amends to myself through self-esteemable action, and today I like myself. Recently, I had somebody explain something to me or bring something to my attention about being lovable because in my childhood, when someone loved me, it meant that they were going to drown me in different things. So it was very hard for me to let somebody love me, and now I'm working on that. At different times in our recovery, we become aware of different things, and sometimes those things can be best addressed just by working the steps in the big book in OA, but often the steps in the big book are fine, but they need the identification of another 12-step program, which I don't want to get into that because it can be an outside issue. But there are times when we discover codependency. We discover a love addiction. We discover a gambling addiction. I have a friend of mine that's been in LA for a very long time, very, very into gambling. Well, that has to be addressed not in OA, but in GA. So Cheryl, yes, there are times when as we bore down on that onion and we start hitting levels of that onion that reveal things to us that God wants us to see. See, we couldn't see the love avoidance. We couldn't see the codependency. We couldn't see the gambling or the sex addiction or the whatever or the, or the alanonic. One of the more common things is the alanonic tendencies, okay? We couldn't see them because all we knew was to cut the rope of the, was to cut the, the noose on the rope closest to our throat, which was the food. Now that the food rope has been cut, we're starting to see these alanonic tendencies. We're starting to see an over-dependence maybe on prescription drugs or gambling or whatever. So, yeah, that has to be dealt with. But the revealing parts of it will make us grow as human beings and not only make us more useful to ourselves and more useful to others, but ultimately more useful to God. And that's the object. And that's how he reveals things to us. That's how he reveals things to us. I hope that answers it, Cheryl. Thanks, Thank Carlin. you, Cheryl. Take care of the two kids today. Love you. Millie J. Millie. 
Where's Millie? Star one, Millie. Uh huh. This is Millie J. Thank you, both of you, uh, for taking my call. Can I be heard? Yes. 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 I'm I'm new to the program, and my question for you is: How do you uh, take someone through the doctor's opinion? One word is I. How do you take someone through the doctor's opinion? I have a sponsor, but I would like to hear from you. Word by word, um, and putting myself into the pages and understanding, again, that the, the foundation of everything in the doctor's opinion is what we're going to build on, and it is the depth at which I accept my powerlessness, which will mark the urgency that I will work the rest of the 11 steps. I take them through one word at a time, and we go through it. It takes about an hour to get through the whole chapter, an hour and a half to get through the whole chapter, and we're done. Now we're ready to go to Bill's story. But you have to put the food down first. You have to put the food down for a couple of days, and we go through the doctor's opinion, and it takes about an hour to an hour and a half, and we're done with it. Well, now we're ready to move to Bill's story. It's not a complicated okay. thing. There's, there's nothing Thank complicated you. there. Nothing. All right, Millie. Thank I hope that you. answers it. All right. Yes. Bye-bye. Okay. Thank you, Millie. Naomi. My Naomi from New Jersey? Uh- Hi, this is Naomi in Florida. Can I be heard? Oh, it's Florida, yes. Naomi. Yes, you can okay. be heard. Right. Good morning. This is Naomi OT. Um, thank you, Harlan. Thank you, Leah. Um, I am a very grateful, recovering, compulsive overeater in Florida. Um, I love, first of all, I love what you said about the seeds. I first came into OA about two years ago and quote-unquote dabbled, um, really wasn't ready. The seed was planted. I came back five months ago, and I've been very gratefully abstinent for four and a half months, um, one day at a time. And um, I had two questions. One is one is quick, well, quick question. Basically, how do you balance putting your recovery first and working the program and your recovery, you know, every day with the desperation of a dying man? and have a professional life and do a good job with that. And then my second question is, <clears throat> I heard what you said about you know dignity of, dignity of choice. Um, I do not follow the flour sugar um, form of abstinence. I follow what Roseanne did. My, my sponsor um, has you know helped me learn how many calories I need to eat every day. I eat what a woman of my height, my age, my gender, my body frame should be eating, and I count calories, I weigh, I measure, I write down everything. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious, how do you or do you, and, and I, and I want to add, I know that the food is a teeny, teeny piece of all of this. We got to mm-hmm. deal with the food, put it, you know, put it down <clears throat> so we can really work on the important parts, the spiritual, the emotional. Um, so do you work with sponsees who 
follow a different food plan or how would you how would you handle that which well let's let's do the first one first and that is balancing balancing recovery with my life i own a business I've owned this business for a long time. This business is going down, and so I've picked something else up, and I have to work just like everyone else, and I have responsibilities, and I have to work out, and I have friends, and I have meetings to go to, and things like that. Recovery comes first before anything. There is no question in my mind that what I put before God, I will lose. How do I know that? I've done it a million times. I have put lots of things in front of God, and I have lost every one of those things. I was married for 17 and a half years, and I had a God that was made of skin that was my ex-wife, was my God. She was my higher power. When she was happy with me, then the world was my little oyster. When she was upset with me, Everything was foreboding and dangerous and horrible. And she was upset with me a lot more than she was happy with me. Trust me on that one. And I realized after I lost my marriage that one of the reasons that I lost my marriage is I put this person's opinion of me before God Almighty. And that is not a safe thing to do. So once you've been burned and burned and burned and burned, you know, you realize after time, don't put things before God unless you're ready to lose them. As far as the food thing goes, I am not the judge and the jury of what anybody should be eating or not eating. I have my food plan. I do not eat foods that trigger the allergy of the body. There are things I can eat that you probably can't eat. There are things I can't eat that you can probably eat with safety. If you're eating a food plan and you're at or approaching a healthy body weight and you are not consuming foods that are triggering the physical allergy, I support that 100%. And that's my answer to that question. I don't care if you eat yak meat. I don't care if you eat the horn of a moose. As long as it's something that you can eat with safety, I'm good with it. I'm good with it. Okay. Thank you. Okay. You're welcome. Thank you, Naomi. Sherry W., star one, to unmute. Hi, good morning. Did you mean Suri W? Yes, that's it. Hi, Thank you. Thank you. Harlan, I could listen to you all day. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank I, you. I really appreciate and relate to everything you say. Um, I am very much um, the person who you speak about, the people who are afraid to sponsor. That's me. And because of that, I got into trouble a few times because I was afraid to go further. I was afraid to be less than the, my sponsor who took me through the steps. And I went through the steps twice, and I never really finished it because of fear that I can't do as well as my sponsor who gave over to me. Um, so two questions. First of all, how soon um, I got back into a relapse, and I'm, I'm working my program now, how soon from the time you, you clean yourself up, so to speak, can you mm-hmm. start sponsoring? 
my sponsors when you've, had a, when you've had a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps. When you've okay. had a spiritual awakening means you're working on nine and you're doing 10, 11 every day. You're doing right. your 10 steps, not right. once, but 10 steps throughout the day as things come up. And then you go to the bottom of page 84. You go to the right. bottom of page 84 right after he describes what to do in the 10th step. It says, and we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even, even alcohol. And then you read through that. Does that match up with you? Are you fighting okay. food at this point? If, if you're not, you're ready to go. Mm-hmm. Read okay. on step two. The reason most people are afraid of sponsoring is that they're not going to do it perfectly. There's no such thing right. as perfect. And they're also right. afraid, oh, my God, this person is not going to like me. Well, okay. you know what? I'd rather ruffle your feathers than bury you. <laughs> There's people out here dying of their untreated food addiction. Are we going to just keep letting them die? Are we just going to keep Are we just going to keep burying them, or are we going to start helping? Because I'll tell you something: you're cheating yourself if you're not sponsoring. This is the I most agree. magnificent journey imaginable. The places you'll go, the people you'll meet, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't want to miss that. I hope the way that I was sponsored, yes, you did. Oh. And my second question is, the way I was sponsored is, is not, you know, I, I was sponsored. It took me about six or seven months. We went through Boy, it. Boy, I know. <laughs> I know six, but seven I months to get how far? I, I, we went through the steps, and I'm very grateful for it because we did it really very much in depth. I'm, I have this fear talk about fear is that I, I won't be able to give over the depth that I received um, the, the depth that I received over those months how can I well obviously to- something happened in your step two that you didn't maybe go over that enough because if you have a step two then step 12 becomes very easy Chain to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity and it's not sanity to work an 11-step program. It's sane to work a 12-step program because the people that have gone before me that have recovered work a 12-step program. Okay. They work a 12-step okay. program. You can't hurt them. You can't hurt them. If, if, if they want to recover, you can't say the wrong thing. If they don't want to recover, you can't say the right thing. Right. The it's underlying not up to theory. you who right. recovers. Right. It's just me to do. Okay. I'd like to Thank share. You. Thank you, Suri W. Rifka A, you had a question. Rifka A, star one, to unmute. <clears throat> Perhaps she had to step away. Oh, wait. There she is. There she is. Rivka, is that you? Harlan, would you like to take a few more? How about two more and we'll be done? Two more and we will be done. Okay. Two more and we're out of here. And we're Anne out of K. here. I'm sorry, I didn't catch your name. Ann K. Ann K. And one more. Linda D. Linda D. All right, Ann Kate, go right ahead, please. Uh, good morning. Thank you, Harlan. It was very enlightening. Uh, my question, uh, where does therapy end and sponsorship begin and vice versa? Where does sponsorship end and therapy begin? 
I have no opinion on therapy, and it's an outside issue. I don't know. Sorry. Okay. I, I, Second I really, question. I, I'll, I'll okay. ask you a question you can possibly can answer. Um, my relatives and friends live in New Jersey, or a lot of them. Uh, do you disclose with people outside program when and if you disclose? They're going to know, want to find out about the conference. Do you just want to find out? The conference is open to anyone who wishes to attend. The conference is not a closed meeting. It's not a closed thing. If they would like to attend, they can go on the website and register for the conference, and they're free to attend. As far as I know, it's not closed. And um, all they need to do is have their credit card ready and register, and they're good to go. And, uh, yeah, well, thanks. They can do that on site, is that correct? They can do that online. Mm -hmm. uh, very simple. It couldn't be easier. Um, couldn't be easier. Go on okay. uh, a vision for you, and there's a thing. Click on it. If I can do it, anybody can. I'm not exactly, okay. a, I'm not exactly a tech savvy kind of dude, but if I can register, anyone can. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Ann Kay. Yes, you can find out about the Vision for You, the Power of the Big Book Convention, by going to a Vision for You website. That's www.avisionforyou.info. That's A V I S I O N, the number four, Y O U dot I N F O. You can register right there on the website. Hope to see you there. And our final question this morning comes from Linda D. Good morning. Can I be heard? Yes. Good morning. This is Linda D. Ricard in North Carolina. Thank you, Harlan, for a great talk. And um, it's good to hear you again. And I am a new sponsor, a new in program, eight months recovered and sponsoring my second person. And one of the things that I'm, I'm finding challenging is knowing how much, and, uh, and I, I almost cringe to use this word, how much accountability to ask for from my sponsee. For example, we go through the doctor's opinion and then basic things that, you know, uh, I, I tell someone that I've done to recover was make my phone calls, go to meetings, stay abstinent, the basics. Uh, if, a, if, a, if a sponsee is not telling me that they're making phone calls or going to meetings, should I ask? Should I say, how's your program going? Are you making phone calls? Are you, or should I just, you know, that's basically the question. There should never be a point where you can't ask them a question. If you can't ask them a question and you're not comfortable with them to ask them a question, then I have to go back to step two. Came to right. believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. It's not sane for me to have these conversations with people and not ask them things. I ask my sponsees all the time, what service did you do today for others? What did you do to bring God into the equation? Did you pray? Did you meditate? Depends on where they are, obviously, if they're in their first, you know, little while there. No. But absolutely ask the questions. How else are you going to know? Absolutely ask the questions. Step two, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. And how are you going to know about accountability? Here's a very simple gauge. Here's a very simple barometer of accountability. Are they eating? Do they want to eat? Are they fighting food? There's your, there's your barometer. There's your accountability. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you, Linda, for the question.
I'm sorry, Leah, I ran over time. No, it's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Harlan, for your generous spirit today and always. Greatly appreciated uh, this morning. Thank you very much. Thanks to everybody who asked questions. Let's close from page 164 in our text. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.